Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show. Very happy to be in your ears. Honored, humbled, grateful. And we're in store for a big one today. Mr. Dan Schwabell. If you guys don't know Dan, he's a New York Times bestselling author. Actually, we first met, he interviewed me for a Forbes article some time ago. I was like, wow, I really like that guy. And since then, he's had his head down. He's kicked out. I think this is his third book. He's also started a handful of companies. And he does a ton of research around creativity, around interacting with technology, around workplace, working remote. Uh, He's just a really, really interesting aggregate of things that I'm passionate about. Uh, And so Dan and I have become friends over the past couple years. He's an incredible author. And his new book we're talking about today called Back to Human, How Great Leaders and Humans Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. I'm a huge advocate of technology, as you all know that and I want us to leverage it and to use it to maximize our ability to create and connect and all those things. But what we don't talk about a lot is the shadow side of that technology. And the truth is we are now very isolated because in part of this technology, we've stopped communicating as humans. Um, And Dan's book does a great job of unpacking that both in uh, our personal lives and at work. And whether you're an individual contributor an individual entrepreneur, creator, or you work in an organization, this interview is going to help you navigate all this stuff. The next generation must create workplaces and environments where we all feel genuinely connected and engaged. And Dan, Dan's book is the definitive book, as far as I'm concerned, for doing that. So this episode is going to be a doozy. He is Mr. Facts and Figures. You're going to love this. Uh, a couple of times I'm like, whoa, you have to say that again. Because he'll just say, yeah, nine out of ten people are more isolated than, you know, so... I slow him down a couple of times. I think you'll love the facts and figures. It gets very tactical, things that you can do to change the relationship you have with technology, make it work for you. And we're not saying don't use technology. This is not an anti-technology episode. This is every bit in favor of it, but it's just using it wisely and carefully and how to have a hybrid of human-connected experiences and, of course, electronic and technologically driven ones. So I'm gonna get out of the way, but before I do, just a quick word from our sponsor. Check this out, y'all. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is sponsored by Creative Live for Business. This is different than the regular old Creative Live. So whether you love, passionately love where you work, or it's sort of like meh, or on the other side, if it's a creative wasteland and you want to inspire some change in the place that you work, you're not alone. Studies say that three out of four people, that's right, 75% of people say they're not living up to their creative potential at work. If so, I want to introduce you to Creative Live's newest product. It's called Creative Live for Business. And in a nutshell, it's a way to get access to all of Creative Live's content for your entire team and or entire company and maybe bring in some much needed energy and innovation to that team or company simply by going to creativelive.com slash teams. Now, Creative Live for Business is already in service of several of the top creative firms on the planet and a powerhouse list of many of the Fortune 100 top brands. These brands care about creativity and innovation. And you know what? These companies pay for this for their employees. 
So it doesn't matter if you're a team of five people, 55, or or if there's 50,000 people in the company. If this sounds interesting to you and you want to check it out, either you can check it out or refer your boss to Creative Live by sending them to creativelive.com slash teams. Remember, most forward-thinking companies, they prioritize things like creative skills, like design thinking, leadership, collaboration, wellness. And again, with Creative Live for Business, you get access to all that taught by some of the top instructors in the world, all on Creative Live. So again, you can visit or send your boss a link to creativelive.com slash teams to learn more. We made in, it your, in your great palace. We, we made it happen. We've had a relationship uh, on the internet for like, Years. Ten, 10 years, maybe? Time flies. Time flies. Um, and we were just saying before the cameras uh, started to roll how cool it is to meet someone in person that you've spent a lot of time corresponding with uh, on the internet. And ironically, that's just the perfect segue into the book. <laughs> I don't wanna, we don't have to go straight there, but the book about back to human and how much more personal and cool it is when you actually have spent time around someone. So, um, But before we go to the book... Give me the background. Go way back. Go to the way back machine. How'd you get here? Where'd you come from? Give me a story. I came from Newton, Massachusetts. <laughs> First job was at age 13. So I had my bar mitzvah. My dad's like, okay, you're getting to work. So I was a caterer at my temple. <laughs> oh, nice. Learned how to deal with people. Yeah. I think everyone should have a service job in their life. Gosh, so for important. Sure, right? Because that's the most important skill. People are always like, why are you tipping so heavily? I'm like, because I had that job for like five years. Empathy. You yeah. can relate to them in their situation. Oh, my gosh. And Amazing. then I had my first internship uh, high, uh, in high school, senior year. I had... You, se- what was that? Was anything interesting? Anything you want to talk about? Or was that with the pizza shop? Yeah. So I was cold calling one summer selling phone auditing, whatever that is. <laughs> a, th- a thousand or so calls. <laughs> you know, got no love, didn't close any sales. And I was sitting next to customer service and they were just smoking cigarettes the whole time. Oh, so it was, I, I was depressed. I was like, felt like I was a failure. And I realized that that's not, that's not the path that I wanted yeah. to take. Yeah. And I knew I was very creative because I was creating websites. Like I had a James Bond website. I had, I think, a Power Rangers website, a <laughs> WCW website before. So were these WWE. like fan sites that you were created? Fan sites, yeah. yeah. I was just doing it for fun. It was a creative outlet. Yeah. And, and then, you know, after when I got into school, nothing has been easy. So yeah. getting into school, I, w- I applied early decision. I didn't get in. And that was the first moment where I was like, okay, I got to work really hard. I got to prove myself to them. Isn't it weird? Interviewed on campus, wrote a letter, got straight A's last semester, fought my way in, got yeah. in, took college very seriously. Seven more internships. I was a student uh, oh, in man. seven or student organizations. <laughs> I was, you know, but I think there, that is a really, over. In, but that's a really interesting realization that at any point in life, if you've ever had things have been easy, even if it's like friendships have been easy, or you, you came from a really stable house or whatever, and then real world starts to happen, you're like, crack, like wow, this is like there's no one, no one's coming for you. There's, there's no Power Rangers are not coming to save the day. You have to do this stuff on your I'm own. I'm so thankful, though, yeah. I, I, that things never came easy because yeah. it prepared me for the rest of my career even now. Yeah. And so when I tried to get a job when I graduated, even with a two-page resume, eight, eight internships, seven leadership positions on campus, straight A's, I had everything. I started my first business sophomore year of college, and still it took eight months meeting 15 people for three jobs to, to get that job when I graduated. But the thing that happened was during the final set of interviews, they looked down at my resume 
and they saw a bunch of companies that I worked for, and their eyes immediately went to Reebok, and that was the life-changing moment. I said, oh my God, brands are so important. I got no experience at Reebok. <laughs> it, was, it was the summer when Adidas acquired them, which most yeah. people don't know, yeah. and so I did like nothing there, but I did so much at some of the smaller firms that you've never heard of before, yeah. and yet their eyes went right to Reebok. I'm like, oh my God, brands are important. I have to take brands seriously, yeah. so everything I do touches brands now. If you look at my bio, if you look at all of my work, there's always, you know, I'm partnering with Oracle on a research study. You know, I'm, you know, with clients and everything that I'm doing, yeah. it's always brands because I always realize that if you don't know me, yeah. you've heard of this brand before and through the association, you will more or less trust me because of it. Isn't that fascinating? I, the same thing is true for the creative industry, for for clients, for me as a photographer for years and years. And um, I think that's originally how we met, in fact. And uh like if you have, and to me, I was in commercial photography. So if you have serious, nice magazines, are helpful. But if you have some really big brands, then it's like, oh, because they people realize that is a qualifier. Like, no, you don't just like. Well, of course, you can sneak through the sneak through the fence in in, in any world. But by and large, if you can name more than one of those, there's has to be you know there's a, there's a check and balance. You can't work. You can't keep doing that and not get found out that you suck. Um, and the same is true with the job, right? Especially in this day and age, you can you can bounce around a little bit, but now there's so much information. So much. So I remember um, one of the way back, I started reading your stuff online as you were writing, um, I think it was in maybe Inc. or Forbes or... Um, Forbes was seven years. Seven years. Starting in 2010. Got it. Before that, I was writing for Business Week, but I've written for most publications. It yeah. all started off with my blog, though. October 2006, I was early into blogging. The blog was called Driven to Succeed. So I was helping students figure out how to get internships and jobs because that's something you that had I had figured out, right? <laughs> right? And from there, in early 2007, I read an article that was written 10 years before. It was The Brand Called You, written by Tom Peters for the cover of Fast Company magazine, 1997, and that inspired the next phase of my career around personal branding. Wow. You have to be the chief marketing officer for the brand called you. At the end of the day, you know, success is in your hands. Build Me, Inc. Mm-hmm. And no one my age was talking about it. I was 22 at the time. And so I created personalbrandingblog.com. And then from there, Personal Branding Magazine. Personal Branding everything. It was like wow. an empire around personal branding in the early days. And yeah. that's how I built a lot of my digital relationships. Uh-huh. And from there... I wrote a book called Me 2.0. This was the first book on how to use social media to build your personal brand. And it was also like how to get your first job when you graduate using all these tools like Facebook and Twitter and everything. And from there, I pivoted and I started to think of, oh my God, so I know how to, I, know, I have these skills. Yeah. I can go in two directions. I can either be in the marketing world or I can use these marketing skills for HR and help people be successful in their careers and then um, create better workplace cultures by advising companies. And that's the route I went in yeah. because it felt right to me. It was my real calling. Yeah, yeah. And I was early. I, I felt like I had discovered something before other people so I could really guide the next generation through their career path. And so I, then the next book I wrote was Promote Yourself. So each book was like impossible for me to get. Yeah. The first one was rejected by 70 out of 70 agents and two publishers. So I got it on my own without an agent. The 70, let's, you're going fast here. I'm going to slow down was rejected seven for, by 70 out of 70 agents. Yeah, and the last one who rejected me was like, oh, I'm thinking about taking you on, but I realized that you're a Red Sox fan, I'm a Yankees fan, so I'm not taking you on. 
just to add a little kick in the shins. So I was so excited. I was waiting for the final response, and then he sent that. I'm like, oh my god! But give me a break. But I eventually got it on my own in January 2008, and it was very exciting because I didn't even know what it meant to have a book. Mm-hmm. You know, I was laughed at anytime I would go to a conference and ask an author. You know, how do you get a book deal? Like, how do you make this happen? So I figured it out on my own. Did the book proposal on my own. No coaching. Didn't didn't know that there were consultants to hire back then. Yeah. And it came out. And before it came out, I was given great advice by a man named David Meerman Scott. He wrote the New Rules of Marketing and PR, and he said, the "Publishers are not going to do any work. It's all on you. Good luck." And so I just met as many people as I could. I did this elaborate marketing campaign, and the book did extremely well. And so after that, of course, you think, oh, getting another book deal is going to be a piece of cake. Right. Not for me. <laughs> I went. I fired two agents. Oh wow. And then one of my mentors, Penelope Trunk, said, "You need an A-list agent if you're going to get a big book deal." And so instead of begging an agent to represent me, what I did was I hired a consultant to interview all of the top agents in New York, so that they would want me. So I got to choose my agent. Wow. And once I got that agent, it still was hard, you know, rejected by all these publishers. Uh, barely got the book deal. I got one finally to say yes yep. after I conducted my first major research campaign. And I've done uh, yeah, forty-five studies, but the first one was with a company called Identified.com, and we analyzed four million millennial Facebook profiles, wow. and that went viral. That was on you know Today Show. It was everywhere, and that was the signal to the publisher that hey we probably should work with Dan. Got it. And then from there, the third book, uh, I, I barely got the third book deal too, even after that, that book with New York Times bestseller before I was 30 <laughs> and all these great accolades. Right. And it was still hard. And so I think what this has done to me is it, it's like, don't take anything for granted. Nothing's going to come easy. Always yeah. work for it. And it's really leveled me off because I've gone through so many ups and downs. Yeah through various phases of my career, not only writing the books, but running right. businesses. Yeah. And I think that has really helped me understand and appreciate what I've done and what could lie ahead. And then it prepares me for, yeah. for it. Well, we're gonna go back into some of that because you just covered probably 15 years and, <laughs> or 20 years and lots of up and downs. And I'd like to get a little more detail. And I do what I do love about the narrative that you opened with is that it's not what Brene Brown would call gold-plated grit, which is like, yeah, it was tough, and then here I am on top of the world with my new book, and everything is rosy. Because that's actually not reality, right? We all know that that uh, the goal is to have an upward slope of your career. I don't know, have you read Scott Belsky's new book? It's a great book. Yeah, I just interviewed him. Uh, okay, it's great. It's a great, great book, The Messy Middle. And he's like, the goal is to have an upward slope and just know that you're going to have 100 ups and downs in the middle. And to me, when I reflect back on your career, not from what I know about it and from what you've just shared here, that that's that marker is there, as is true with basically everybody. So if you're at home thinking, and you just got your first gig, say you're a designer, you just got this freelance design gig with Nike, or you just got your first proposal uh, for a research study accepted by Oracle or whatever, and you think you've made it, <laughs> Dan's story, let Dan's story be a lesson to you. You've made it for the next approximately four weeks. And then- I've come to realize one thing, Chase, yeah. is that it's the subtle art of patience with persistence. Yeah. So I go after things so hard, mm-hmm. but now, after having so many ups and downs, 
I take a step back and I'm willing to get rejected for even many years until yeah. something works out. Yeah. Even when we both interview people, yeah. like some of the people that I interview could take over six years to interview them. Wow. So I, every year I just go back, I keep going back, I keep going back. And it's, it's less about you and more about timing. Yeah. And so a lot of people take it personally. For me, because I've done over 2,000 interviews with some of the most successful people in the world, like you, I've, I've come to realize that that it's not about you. It, yeah. They're not rejecting you. They're just maybe rejecting your platform or they're not ready to promote something. So they, they're not, they don't need your platform to promote a product or a service or them in, in general. Right. Well, let's go into that a little bit, timing. Because I do think it's a really interesting point that you made about most people over-index that this is about me. I'm getting rejected. But give me a couple examples, specific examples in your career where you thought it was you, but you came to find out two days, weeks, months, or years later, that it was like, oh, well, I went to, I wanted to interview this person, but they weren't promoting anything. They were like on vacation with their family for a year. They were on sabbatical, or give me a couple of examples. It's interesting because it doesn't exactly happen like that. Mm -hmm. They usually just say, this is not gonna happen, or they'll say after a few months that so-and-so doesn't have time to speak with you. Mm -hmm. And then I make a note, and then I reach back every six months just to check in to see if it's going to happen. And, right. and I'm so patient now, and I think the more wins you get, the more times you interview people, the more research right. studies you do, yeah. the more patient you become because what's another research study? What's another interview at that point? Sure. So that's the new psychology that I have, which makes me even more patient. Yeah. And I think the most important thing, and you, this probably resonates with you too and many of your viewers, is I want to do this forever. Yeah. So what what is waiting another five years to interview Oprah or right. 20 years. Like it doesn't right. matter right? because I'm going to be doing this forever. So eventually it works out and I have to accept the outcome no matter what anyways. Got it. Well, so let's, let's go back for just a second now and talk about like what you do. So for those folks at home, we've identified you as an author. Obviously you write great books. You talk about getting your first job out at, of at, at at school. The second one, the 2.0 is... My understanding of how you describe that book is this is how you go from individual contributor to uh, manager or a leader or the next phase in your sort of your work or your career. And the, obviously the third book, Back to Human. So, but in, in, in you're more than just a writer. And this is one of the things that I think we have a lot of overlap in our areas of curiosity and interest, in part because Creative Live is a learning company. And we help people learn their passions, whether that's for a career, hobby, or just life and lifestyle. You also have uh, a lot of background in helping people connect with learning around the world. You work a lot with chief learning officers. And the book is, in some ways, a reflection of that real work, that the deep work that you do. So give us a little descriptor or give me a little context for the folks at home. So from a research perspective, mm-hmm. do you consider yourself a researcher? Like, what's your acronym? I mean, I call you an entrepreneur and an author. So here's the best way to look at things. Okay. What are you most passionate about relative to everything that you do? Yeah. So I would say research first. I look at that as distribution of research. I look at a presentation as distribution of research. Now I mix in storytelling and examples, but for the most part, I love the research. You can't can't lead 45 studies in six years if you hate research. (laughs) It doesn't work, right? Right? So it's over 90,000 people interviewed in over 20 countries. Wow. Right. And so for me, I realized that in this phase of my career, the big differentiator is my body of work. And so if I can point to all these you know, research studies and everything I've learned through them, 
that really gives me an edge in the market. Yeah. And because a lot of the biggest companies in the world, like you know the Accentures and the Deloitte's, the big professional service firms, they have unlimited budgets. Yeah, they have massive research organizations. I'm a research person of one, and I can do three studies at the same time because I've created a machine based on doing this so many times over so many years. Got it. And it's always exciting because I'm finding something new and give, delivering it to the marketplace. The reason why I love research is because when I was younger, no one took me seriously. And as a way to combat that, I pointed to other people's research. You don't believe me? Well, here's what a professor says. You don't believe me? Here's a study on this of 3,000 people. And then once I had the opportunity in 2012 to do my own study, I got hooked because I'm like, oh my God, like this is going to differentiate me. This is it. This is what I enjoy. I'm like an archaeologist trying to discover the next dinosaur bone. Except you're doing it with humans. Except I'm doing it with humans. And so I have a very good lens on it. And from a learning perspective, there's a whole chapter on learning. It's called Practice Shared Learning. And the average relevancy of a learned skill is only five years. So in order to keep up with the changing demands of the marketplace, we have to rely on each other, learn from each other, and support our own learning and development. So if you take a creative live course, hopefully you share that with your peers. And that's good for your business, but it's also good for teams in order to keep up with all these changes because things are happening fast. And in order to support each other, we have to be able to constantly share courses and and white papers and articles and books Books. and podcasts. And and so the more we get in the habit of of sharing, especially if you're a leader, other people will do that and you create a shared learning culture and everyone is supported together. And especially with the big skills gap we have, we have millions of unfilled jobs in America and that's just America. Um, In order to fill those jobs, in order for companies to better compete and grow at the right speed, we need everyone to participate in learning and development and make sure that we're all moving ahead together. Well, speaking of that, if you've heard this, the, uh, the adage, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, and it seems like uh, you've done a very good job of spending a lot of quality time around some amazing humans. And, I mean, you've made a really important statement, both overtly and sort of embedded in your points about this took me a long time, right? This is not something that happened overnight. You didn't get to interview, fill-in-the-blank superstar, just knock on the door one day, and, and then you get let in the door. There's persistence and patience and all these things that you've already talked about. But let's go back from your zero-to-one moment where you hadn't done any research, you hadn't interviewed anybody, and you're trying to get the first person to say yes. See, I think this is the most powerful thing. I call it the rule of one. All you need is that one opportunity, and it, you can grow so much from that, that one chance, that one project, that one study, that one article, that one book. Yeah. You know, it's, it, without a track record, it's hard to get opportunities, but once you have that one it, then, study, then you can just talk about the last changing. thing you did, which... <laughs> I interviewed people you've never heard of before when I was 22. Yeah. Professors at, you know, Ivy League schools that you've never heard of. But I used those, and I got those published, and then I interviewed more people, and I just kept pointing to all of my work, and then I constantly was pitching you know, magazines and online outlets. I went from starting my own blog to writing for Brand New Week magazine, which took six months, to Business Week, to Forbes, and then I just spread out and was freelancing. And then all of that effort that I put in enabled me to get the content for the first book. It enabled me to refine my writing style. And I'll tell you one thing, even with TV, starting off in local TV, incredibly valuable. 
Because if you go from never being on TV to the Today Show, then yeah. you might flop, and, yeah. and then you'll never be asked back again ever. Right. They create, keep a database, you are gone. Yeah. <laughs> so true. I'm so happy, even though I wanted to be on national TV from day one, even though I wanted to write for you know, like a major media outlet like Harvard Business Review or The Guardian or The Economist on day one, I'm happy I didn't because you don't want to mess those opportunities up. You yeah. want to hone your skills so that you're prepared at the right time to be able to seize the opportunities and hit a grand slam. That's a, it's a huge perspective builder right there. It's like if you're at home right now thinking like, oh man, I just want to shoot for Nike tomorrow or oh man, I just want to you know write for The Guardian or whatever your, the pinnacle of your industry is, why don't you think about that? Do you really want to do that tomorrow? How would you feel? The, other, you, the other thing with the creative, Chase, yeah. is almost everything I've done, I've just started off doing for free. So for speaking, my speaking career was like this. I spoke at 30 colleges, didn't get paid, had to pay my own expenses. And then one of the, a girl who was at, uh, in the audience of one of the colleges I spoke to, she got a job and they hired me for I think it was $6,500 plus a limo. So you go from, going from zero and paying your expenses to $6,500 a limo messes you up a little bit. Yeah. Like, what, did I rob a bank? Like, what is going <laughs> right. on here? This is crazy. Yeah. But what I did was, which most people probably wouldn't, is I took that money and I literally handed it over to a speaking agency. So I gave them 30% without them having to do anything. I closed the deal and everything. Now, why did I do that? I did that because I knew I wanted to be in the speaking world for the rest of my life. So what's 30%? It's nothing. And so I got represented and built a multi-six-figure speaking career because of that one decision I made. And that's just one example. The research, my f first few studies, I didn't get paid for, and now we're getting paid for. So, right. um, um, How do you combat the, the phrase that people always write, like, if you are not getting paid, then you're, getting, you're suckered because then you're working for free? What's your, what's your point of view there? I mean, I, I mean obviously, I, I'm kind of speaking tongue-in-cheek there, but I want to know what your explanation is because there's someone who li listening right now or watching going like yeah man I'm gonna like I only get paid from day one so what's yeah, your, how do you think, combat that? I think what's important is if you've never done something before and you don't have a track record in an actual case study yeah. doing something for free makes it much easier to get the case study because you eliminate risk on the other party yeah and honestly hiring people as you know from hiring or, yeah hundreds of people or yeah. hiring it's you want to eliminate risk. You're always thinking about eliminate risk. And how do you eliminate risk? You hire someone who's done it before. You hire someone who has done a project and it's increased revenues or decreased costs. There's some metric behind it. Yeah. There's something to show for it. And they're less risky, so you're more likely to hire them. So hiring is all about eliminating risk based on their personality, what they're able to deliver, their track record. Right. And so once you take that, once you take the money off the table, it's easier to get the first few gigs, which is so important because then if you do a great job, you'll just keep getting business forever. Yeah. So even if it's a short-term sacrifice and long-term success. I have a philosophy of free or full, full, full price. Because it, to me, it's the middle. If someone says, you got six grand to speak? Oh, I only have 500. And you go, okay, I'll do it for 500. Then you're like, you, they file you in the 500 bucket. When they have another gig, they're not gonna say, oh, I got 10 grand. You know, I'm gonna call that $500 dude. No, they're gonna cost someone who was a $20,000 woman to come speak and that's who they want now because that's what they want is something that's just out of reach. I find that um, the free thing is very powerful. If you can build money, relationships, and por or portfolio, or sorry, the, the, the way I think about it is money, portfolio, relationships, you know, obviously try and walk away with two. Yeah, here's the other thing too. Yeah. I think you get to decide how you want to make money 
And so for me, I have companies where I make money and then all these other skills, like interviewing, I don't get paid for, Yeah. right? It takes it out completely out of the equation, focus completely on the relationship. I could, my friends want me to open up a publishing company or a PR book company, <laughs> could easily do that, right? I yeah. have those skills, don't do it. I'd rather just do it for free for people I believe in yeah. because I use, I choose to make money one way and then the other way I do it for free because I leverage that way in order to build the relationships yeah. that lead to other things that I hope to do in the future. I think the relationship, or this might be a good catapult. We're going to shoot right into the new book. So we talked in the you know, first minute of our our conversation here about connecting in person and how meaningful it is. You just talked about relationships being a catalyst to so many things that have basically been the successful levers in your career. Even meeting that woman in the audience and having her ultimately hire you for your, she didn't know you were getting paid zero. She called and asked what your speaking fee. You said, you know, whatever, you had a little negotiation and she's okay, great, here's 6,500 and sent you a limo. That's amazing. But, well, here we are, right? It's, it's a world where technology is so easy. It's really hard to fly across the country. And, but why don't I just, like, I'll just FaceTime them. It's just the same. You chose to write a book about how that's not the case. Tell me why. So two years ago, I was interviewed for a documentary. It's called The Revolution Generation, a portrait of the millennial generation. Mm-hmm. And I was asked for two and a half hours, what is the biggest challenge that the generation faces? So like we've talked about student loan debt, $1.53 yep. trillion in student loan debt outstanding in America. Huge issue. Did you hear that? It's just like $1.5 trillion. More than credit card debt in our company for those who are paying attention. Student loan debt, big deal. Climate change, yes. world war. But then I, I thought in my head, I'm like, what's affecting people on a daily basis? And it's, we're all using technology. We're addicted to technology. And my, my theory is that technology has created the illusion of connection, when in reality, our overuse and misuse of it has led to isolation and lonely, loneliness and disengagement. Yeah. And what, what I found in the book is that this is a huge epidemic, right? Yeah. It's happening all over the world. In Japan, 30,000 people die every single year from loneliness. In the UK, nine million people are lonely. 200,000 adults haven't spoken to a close friend or relative in the past month. Whoa, 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 You're, this, these are too many stats here. This is too fast. <laughs> this is, so th- how did 30,000 people, people die from loneliness per year? And how do they attribute that? That's like, is it like from suicide and from- like, Living alone, suicide, yeah. Wow. It's a combination. In wow. the UK, there's a minister of loneliness because yeah, it's an I, epidemic. Yeah, I have heard about that. That's fascinating. And in the U.S., half of Americans were lonely and 40% lack meaningful relationships. So this is a, a really big issue. And part of the study I did with Virgin Pulse of over 2,000 managers and employees in 10 mm-hmm. countries was that you know, half of the global workforce has five or fewer friends and about 7% has zero friends at work. Yet in America, especially, we're working 47 hours a week. On average, in the U.K., it's about 50 hours and if, if we spend so much time you know, working, if a third of our lives is spent working, you know, it's really important that we have good relationships with the people we work with. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, work is the work you do and who you do it with. Yeah. So and if you're spending 10 hours a day there, roughly based on your work week. And not having your phone is a new vacation. We're always, yeah. we're always kind of working, right? We feel guilty if we're not picking up the phone. And yeah. we're addicted to the technology because every time we leave an alert or hear an alert, we pick up our phone and we want that more and more and more like a slot machine. Yeah. 
because the, the technology companies are purposely trying to get us addicted because it's their business model, is our attention. And so every time we get an alert, it releases dopamine, which is our reward system, yeah. so we want more and more. Yeah. And that becomes a huge problem because if we're spending so much time on the technology, that means less face-to-face -face time. And what's really, really fascinating is the biggest thing that gets in the way of face-to-face -face communication uh -huh. in the workplace is email. Yet, a study in the Harvard Business Review found that one face-to-face -face interaction is more successful than 34 emails exchanged back and forth because you lack understanding if you do that. Okay, so this is a great time for me to inject this question because we were having a discussion. Are, is the millennial generation more apt to send an email and less apt to pick up the phone or see someone in person? And have they been conditioned? Is this something that we owe that generation, that you're, you're, we owe them your book to undo giving them technology too early? Or uh, did, have we culturally done this and what do we do to fix it? So here's what's really fascinating. What we want is different than how we actually behave. We want in-person communication. We want to work from a corporate office. Yet, we spend 30% of our personal professional time on Facebook, and that doesn't include Instagram or email or text. <laughs> the scariest thing is teenagers. So teenagers are the first group that would rather text than have a face-to-face -face interaction. Wow. So this is all going to head its and way into the workplace. And do they say that, or do they, and do they actually mean that? Yeah, this is what I, they say. Okay. And so that's a big deal, right? Because mm -hmm. if you have multiple age groups and generations in the workplace, there's going to be a lot of conflicts because people are using different technologies to communicate and yeah. they have different preferences. So there's a lot of dysfunction that can happen there. Yeah. And so that's why I think it's more important now than ever before that we use technology as a bridge to human interaction, not a barrier. We let the technology book a conference room for us. We let technology you know, get, you know, set both of our calendars or our team's calendars so that everyone shows up at the right meeting at the right time. Yeah. But once we're in that meeting, we should be present and focused on the people there. And everyone complains that meetings are an hour long and we hate meetings, right? Well, part of that is because no one's paying attention to meetings. Yeah. People send an average of five texts in, during a meeting. <laughs> the amount of data that you have is just like the stream just pounding me <laughs> in the face right now. It's amazing. I'm just like processing like, oh my God. So I don't know if you're willing to do this. I just decided that I, I would want to do this just for the, the Let's show. Let's do it. Uh, I, I think I saw you had an iPhone. Yes, and an old I'm, one. I'm, I'm wondering if you're willing to just quickly open it up and look at your screen time. Okay. Which is the technology. <laughs> I don't have it with me. Um, oh, is it over there? Nas, I'll bring it to you. And let's just, I just wanted to take a peek because I haven't looked in a long time. So what I was interested in was seeing, uh, okay. So... I don't think I can see it because I haven't updated my phone. Oh, yeah, got it. Okay, all right. So it's under. The, it's under. If you do, if you would have it, it would be under. You know, the little sprocket here under settings, and then down here to screen time. If you haven't updated screen the new iOS. No, I, okay. So we'll just. I'll, I will be the guinea pig then. Okay. So over the last seven days, the average number of pickups, which is when I pick up my phone and look at it, sixty-nine per day. Yeah, so the data says we check our phone every 12 minutes and we tap our devices over 2,600 times a day. You touch Tap, your... tap is like flicking wow. anything. So this is pickups 69 times per day. And uh, my, my biggest was on Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. My most pickups is between uh, 110 pickups on average between uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. So those are the busiest days on my calendar if you're trying to get a hold of me. Don't. 
The other okay. thing, though, Chase, is I'm not saying that technology is bad. It's all right. about use cases. Yeah, for, for sure. instance, if one of your teammates has to come to a meeting in a few minutes and you think they might have forgot, send a text. That's yeah. perfectly okay. Yeah. But if there's an office conflict, yeah. if, you're, if, if you and someone else don't see eye to eye, texting yeah. is not going to work. Right, I do see a lot of that from a sort of a managing people perspective. Like people try and resolve this via email and I'm like, whoa, just they're like right over there. Go talk to them. And you know you shouldn't keep sending emails if, if you've gone back and forth and there's been nothing resolved or yeah. no action taken. That right. means it's broken. That means you yeah. need to just walk two feet and talk to the person. Yeah. And I think it's important too, especially we talked about like remote work. Mm-hmm. Everyone talks about the light side of remote work. Okay, let's 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 do this. Let's go to the dark side. And you were going there, <laughs> but I need to frame this. Because we was talking about like, man, I'm, you know, of the topics in the book, I think this is really interesting, the dark side of remote work because you know, we've had people that are sitting in the same chair that you're sitting in right now and just be pound the table, remote work, remote and I think what I like is a blend. And I'm saying my preference before you just like dice this to pieces with your data. Data data guy over here, interview guy. So I I like a mix because I like I need some alone time to do deep writing, heavy, heavy thinking, strategy, you know, those it's either one or like myself in a room in a faraway place. I just you know, in order to do this interview, I just came in from basically being in the woods. Isolated, thinking about a bunch of strategy that I wanted to get down. So I got a whiteboard, filled it up. And yet, I really do crave human connection because I find it wildly efficient because it's much more so than, than text, by and large, unless we're communicating about like small, useless pieces of data. So you're about to uncork your But data. everything you just said yeah. is actually how you're supposed to do it. The oh, research, good. The research shows you, need a, you do need a blend. Okay. So... I've done some, a lot of research on why people want to be part of the gig economy and why they want remote work, and it's because they get the freedom and flexibility to work when, where, and how they want. Yeah. And I think that's a great thing. Yeah. And it lowers your commuting costs, too, yeah. right? And so that freedom is something that's really important to pretty much every worker between the ages yeah. of you know, 21 and yeah. 60. There's data that says it's more important than money. Yeah. And in, in compensation. Because it's worth money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the dark side is that you can be very isolated and lonely if you're not getting the human connection. Yeah. And the biggest finding in the study is if you work remote, you're much less likely to want a long-term career at your company. So it affects team and organizational commitment. And to me, that's the aha moment because I've worked remote for eight years. So this is very relevant. Yeah. And knowing that I, I had suffered from loneliness from not getting the human connection, I was like, yeah. okay, what can we do to make this work? So every Monday we have a call, we have the office, I'm, I'm constructing my schedule so that I'm doing personal related things and I'm having meetings during the day. Yeah. So everyone says, and you probably do this too, like your calendar, you live and die by your calendar. If it's not in your calendar, it doesn't exist. It's very hard for me if it doesn't. And, yeah. and because of that, we have to arrange our calendar so it's we're inputting our personal and professional uh, activities on there. Yeah. And what we found in a recent study with Kronos of 3,000 workers in eight countries is that uh, over 70% of workers don't have enough time to do personal-related activities. So we have to be conscious of this. If so we're, point is, uh, most workers don't have time for personal stuff. Because they're burned out. They're always yeah. working all the time. Yeah, and, and I, I sometimes will go like freakishly long without a haircut. And then one day I get up <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, dude. <laughs> like I, I find, and it's in part because I love my work, but it's also like, like, oh my gosh, I didn't make time to eat today. These are like basic human functions that we forget to do because even if, whether we're engrossed in a good way or not so good way, 
we're, we're tied up. And so you're saying yeah, the and I just and, and I just think, just with our clients, we work with the, the biggest companies in the world, and if we didn't have four meetings every year, mm-hmm. you know, over 100 come to each meeting, senior, mm-hmm. very senior people in HR, if we didn't see them every, they'd be gone. They yeah. wouldn't be our customers anymore. And I think about with my business partners, if I didn't, if I didn't see them at least somewhat regularly, yeah. I'd be gone as a partner, right? Yeah. Like, so I think the in-person is so important, and I've been thinking about this a lot recently. It's like, even if it costs you $30,000 to fly your remote workers in for a day to yeah. do team building activities, which we found is very effective, yeah. that's nothing compared to replacing people. It costs at least $10,000 to replace each employee yeah. at the end of the day. So even one touch point a year can be so effective. Yeah. I, I saw an interesting quote in the back of the book from Dan Pink, someone who I like, I like Dan's work a lot. Yeah. So the role technology plays in our lives and how our over-reliance on ga- gadgets is deepening isolation. So you talk, you, you listed a bunch of the isolation stats, but what would, what would a person who thinks they prefer technology, I'll just use the millennial that you cited earlier, how would Dan, what would, what would you and Dan say to this person that says, yeah, but I don't like, like I would, I prefer texting someone. And can you say definitively that you, you think you prefer it, but it actually makes you sick and less productive and blah. Is that what your research is trying to do? Yeah, they, okay. ha- they haven't come to terms with it. There's, there's five things that are really consistent in, in our world. We're born, we die, we pay taxes. There's 24 hours in a day. Yeah. Right? We're not going to get more hours in a day. And then Maslow's hierarchy of needs. After safety, security, food, and shelter, we need love and relationships. Otherwise, we'll never be self-actualized. So if yeah. you're not, if you don't have deep relationships, no one when they're 90 is like, man, I wish I made more money. It's right. all about relationships. Yeah. People who live the longest are the ones who have the best relationships. The people who are the happiest have the best relationships. Happiness is other people, right? And so if we know relationships are important and that we will, we, relationships can go only so far using our devices, yep. then we have to to leverage the devices in order to set up more in-person situations that are, that are more sticky, more, where better bonds are created. And so I think video conferencing in terms of technology is a great innovation. It's yep. one of the biggest innovations being used in companies now. Yep. And I think at least that you get to see and hear someone is yeah. so much more valuable than just emailing and texting. Yeah. So that's something, but I still think that an offsite, a team building activity, right. an annual retreat or conference, so important for meeting people. Right. And I think it's on the remote worker to actually put the time in to construct their schedule so they're deliberately meeting people throughout the day. Yeah. And, and it's all about social integration, too. Will you, say that, will you say that one more time? Because you said it fast. Listen up. Like, if you're a remote worker, it's up to who? You need to be accountable to construct your own day so you are having interactions. And that's probably, at the end of the day, a benefit for both you and your employer, it sounds like. Exactly. And if you're a freelancer, I think I notice this a lot. And I, you know, if I get off a stage from somewhere or whatever, and there's a line of people that I'm, I'm excited to talk to and are excited to talk about to, about whatever they just heard on the stage, that a really consistent thing is uh, isolation early in entrepreneur or creator's career. Because you're working so hard, you're super passionate about what you do, it takes a ton of effort. And you don't know anybody in an industry because you're just getting started. It's extremely isolating. Yeah. And it's all on you. If you fail, if you don't get clients, that affects your whole pers- uh, persona, personality, everything. Yeah. Right? Your well-being. So let's talk about for, let's, let's go away from the company and go to the individual. And let's get tactical for a second. So 
what are some tactics that individual entrepreneurs or creators, or I'll let you squeak in there a little bit with a remote employee, but and just on a on a daily human human to human, not even around the workplace. What can we do? What are some tactics that someone who doesn't think they need it or is not very good at it or hasn't really thought about this as a topic, what's the advice that you give them? Yeah, so if you're a freelancer, there are other people who are like you. Find them and maybe work in the same co-working space as them. That's what one of my friends did. He's yeah. like, I feel very isolated. I'm working from home you know, one or two days a week. I have a few friends and we gather up and even though we're working kind of in isolation in our own gigs, we yep. can help each other because we're next to each other. Yeah. And we can go to lunch together, we can get coffee. We, this can be more social because yeah. they know they're, they're gonna be lacking that if they just work from home all the time. So it's on the person to set up the situations and find people who are like them to come together with. And some of our early research found that more and more freelancers are partnering now to take on bigger projects and because they fear isolation. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a good thing because it, we, no matter what happens, we have these basic human needs. And so we're looking to connect whether we admit it to ourselves or not. And I think that if you're a freelancer, it is making the time to be with other people, yeah. right? It is, you know, putting refreshing your, your skills, refreshing your skills, yeah. putting it on your calendar. It's about constructing your day so that, you know, you're having coffee with another creative, a freelancer, that you are making time to be with friends. So like, it is on you yeah. within a big company. Yeah. The leader and the organization needs to help facilitate it, but it has yeah. to happen organically. Yeah. But as the individual, there's a lot of pressure on you to make that happen. Yeah. And uh, over time, if you're not practicing your social skills, if you're not meeting with people, yeah. you become more awkward. If I don't see someone you know, in a few days, it feels weird when I'm around people. Yeah, that's fascinating. We're social animals. There's no question about that. I mean, what is it? Uh, I think Tony Robbins does a really good job of reminding us that loneliness is, is a huge, like you've already said, an epidemic with disease and um, and pain, and that even if you ever wondered if this is true or, ah, it's just fiction, we're social animals, clearly, because if left alone, if we have food and water, but we're not held as a child, yeah. you will not survive. That's fascinating to me. And, um, and another staff, so I interviewed the US, former U.S. Surgeon General, and he said that the loneliness epidemic exists and that loneliness it has the same health risk and reduction of life as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it's horrible for your health. And after the age of 25, you start losing friends more and more regularly. And this is a way, in, in the study I did for the book and just in my research, bigger deal for men because men are less emotional, less vulnerable. So women, as they age, they, they hold on to more relationships, whereas men don't. All right. Good to know. I, I think I, I sense that in... In just popular culture, and I'm thinking about my guy friends, and there's a sort of, um, I'm north of 40, I'll say that, and now it's, there are conversations at the dinner table or at the, at the bar or at the event or whatever about connection in a way that I don't remember in the previous sort of 10 or 20 years of my professional and personal circles, like, and I think people are feeling it and yeah. it's, it's interesting that's why me. I'm optimistic too yeah I'm, I'm, I'm just about to sort of turn that into the positive to me this is like well we weren't talking about this before and it seems like we're starting is that part of you know why you wrote the book or like, absolutely what? it's the feeling that I have yeah. and the feeling that other people have that I 
talk to on a regular basis is everyone's looking for a support group. People feel isolated, and especially in New York City. In New York City, you can be on the subway, you can be walking down the street, you could be in office, yeah. and you feel like you're around so many people, yet no one at the same time. Yeah. Because people are physically there, but not mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. And over time, that wears you down. You feel like you know, you're around no one and, and you feel very isolated and lonely and that affects your health and well-being, which therefore affects your productivity and success in the workplace. So yeah. everything is interrelated. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about how individuals, what they can do. It's on you to set up a schedule, to join some co-working, to reach out to, to you know, other people who are like-minded in your community and try and get together. What about if you're a leader in an organization? Because we just breezed through that pretty quickly. Like, let's, why don't you talk to me like I'm a leader in an organization and it's my responsibility to do what? Tell me. It's about touch points. Okay. So one touch point is to recognize one of your employees. So I interviewed a former CEO and chairman of Yum Brands, David Novak, and so he would do something funny to recognize employees. He would you know, give one a rubber chicken or chatterbox, right? And when he did that, they felt special, they laughed, and it was in front of everyone, so they, they felt like they really accomplished something, and that human touch made a huge impact on those employees, okay. so they stayed with him longer. Rubber chicken, okay, check. That's one. <laughs> Shared learning, like I was saying before. Yeah. You know, if you can get people in, in your organization, in your par- department, to constantly share what they know with each other, yeah. you're just fostering multiple touch points. So and that is that something you set up like a, like, Teach and learn, or whatever, some sort of like a lunch and learn. Look kind what of Google situation. does. Yeah, the G to G program. They have. We'll talk about that for people who don't know. They have a ton of employees who sign up to just teach other employees what they know for free. For Is it just like I go over to Robbie's desk? No, it's full classes. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's so powerful because it shows that learning is important to the organization and that employees are empowered to actually stand in front of people and share something that would benefit more people on their team or just across the organization. And so that's another touch point. And then I think overall, I I have a whole chapter. Chapter nine is lead with empathy, which is very powerful, right? It's about understanding where people are coming from. And so many people suffer from mental health issues and might need some time to themselves. So it's about taking a step back, meeting them where they are, and then giving them the freedom to take some time off so that they can come back healthier and and ready to make a difference. So... In an organization that is small, right? I think we're talking about Google. So let's go to a small, because there's a lot of people who are like, small design shop, or little photo studio, or... Um, well, even think of your organization. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. It's like, just the, the small things really matter. Recognizing oh, sure. someone who yeah, we went above the, and beyond what they were... We have the ass kicker of the month. We have, we have a Lunch and Learn called 20 Minutes of Genius, which we've got, we get the best people in the world to come through here and teach 10 million creators around the world. And we have a little special sessions where they teach to the Creative Life staff. Like, it's and, amazing. And why you do that is because it's about the culture. Yeah. People feel excited to come to work every day, and yeah. thus they'll perform much better. Yeah. And they won't leave after a year. That's the big issue. Right. This is all associated with retention, right? Yeah. So right. if you have a highly engaged and social workforce, they're going to stay longer, which saves you more money. Yeah. And hiring, as you know, takes time. If you look at across all size companies, the, the time to fill a position is so much longer than it ever was. People are slower to hire. And because of that, you know, you really want to hold on to who you already have. Yeah. And the best way to do that is to create a culture where people feel like they, there's trust, they have a sense of belonging, yeah. um, they're happy, and there's purpose behind yeah. their work. 
Those know, are the four employee engagement factors. I love that. And do you know the book, The Alliance by Reid Hoffman? Yes. It's a great book. I read, Reid's been on the show. He's an awesome, awesome guy. And I just love that. That basically the book called The Alliance is a book that he, and I think Ben Casnoja wrote, which is about having a real relationship where you don't pretend like that you're not a human <laughs> and that you are a computer and you can just work for you know 40 hours staring at your screen tick, 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 and that you actually have career goals and this might not be it's we're, we've lost the era where you come to work at one place and it's 40 years and retire with the gold watch well, because the incentive is gone yeah there used to be pensions yeah there used to be pensions and lots of things and yeah. so you can either pretend that, that still exists and run work like it had always been run or you can say let's talk about this like what are your actual career goals how long do you want to stay here what do you want to learn what do, where do you want to be and how can i as a manager or a leader help you achieve your goals if you can come and do tours of duty and it's really well planned and orchestrated and like I just love the transparency. So this, this connects very well to chapter one. Chapter one is focus on fulfillment. Yes. And it's focus on your fulfillment as a leader before you even look to anyone else on your team, right? Because if you're not happy, if you don't have a sense of purpose, if you're not excited, if you don't know where your organization or even your department or team is going, yeah. how are you supposed to inspire other people? So when you're ha- the fact that you're happy, you know, everyone yeah. who works for you is going to be excited yeah. because they, they look to you well, first. Well, that's them. They look to you first. Yeah. And to me, it's so so powerful. I even think in in my own relationships in my company, because I'm so happy and fulfilled, because I'm doing everything that I ever dreamed of and more that I never even thought was possible, everyone else benefits from that. And so you need to get your stuff right first. That is so important. And then what I would do is I would meet with individual team members to figure them out, like you were just saying with Reed's book. It's like, what are you looking for? What are your goals? What are your aspirations? And how can I, as a leader, help get you there? Yeah. So once you're, it's so much easier to help people if you're already excited and, and you're good. Yeah, and nine, what I find. And that's any relationship. For sure. And nine out of 10 times that I find when I have that conversation with a teammate or an employee or whatever, and it's like, well, how does this, what we're talking about, does this map to what you're talking about? And I go, oh, well, I kind of prefer more of this. Like, oh, cool. Well, here, here we can modify this. And it's really important that we're aligned. Because if I'm saying, you know, hop on your left foot, and you're like, I hate my left foot. I want to hop on my right foot. Or whatever the thing is, that example. Like, that's just a really hard, you know, that's going to create dissonance in what you want. And, as well. and everyone's different and yeah. has different needs at different time periods because yeah. of the human life cycle. Like, if one of your teammates is having a kid, they're going to need a different level of, Flexibility, you know, maternal, maybe paternal leave, right? But if another one is 23 years old, their needs are different. Right? Yeah. It just changes, right? So yeah. the younger you are, the more you want learning and development opportunities. As you oh. get older, you start to focus more on healthcare and retirement benefits. Is that with the data? Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so it depends on where they are. And then individually, you know, one might want to be the next CEO, whereas another one is perfectly happy being an individual contributor. Yeah. But you don't know that unless you ask those questions. And I would push someone to ask those questions as early as possible. And in person, right? These are, this is the, an emotional conversation. Yeah. Because a career is such a part of someone's identity. Yeah. Because they're spending so much time at work. So if you're not having those critical conversations in person, then they're going to feel less connected. They're going to, they, their needs might not be met and you might not even know that. Yeah. So, you have inter- I'm going to shift gears for a second here. You have shift. You have interviewed as you you, you said two thousand over two thousand yeah. over two thousand. Okay, and I've been on the receiving end of those interviews uh, for a same couple format pieces. every single time. Too. And yeah, it's a really interesting. You, you've got a format. So rather than going down the format path, I'm interested in the human characters. So uh, 
rather than individuals. You don't even have to name the individual who I love, said the Hulk Hogan story is great. Okay, give me the Hulk Hogan. It's my favorite. Okay, because it was my favorite interview of all time. All right, go there. So, uh, early uh, like six years ago, when I was writing for Forbes, Forbes had a partnership with Yahoo. So some of the articles you wrote on Forbes would go on the homepage of Yahoo, which back then was the number one place you could ever be on the yeah. internet. Over 40 million views per article. Wow. And so that was the, I interviewed Ryan Blair, who's a multimillionaire, and that article was on the homepage of Yahoo. And he called me, he's like, this, is, this article like changed my life. And he's like, what can I do for you? I looked <laughs> at his website, and he had Hulk Hogan as a spokesperson. I'm like, I loved Hulk Hogan. I saw him when he wrestled Andre the Giant when I think I was six, six years old in Worcester, Massachusetts. And <laughs> I loved him, right? I, it's Hulk Hogan. He's like the most recognizable person ever. <laughs> right. And so I got his cell phone number. I called him. He was like by his, his pool in Florida. And it was just incredible. Hey, right? what's up, Dan? <laughs> and, and between that... This and, is the Hulk Hulkamania here. Yeah. <laughs> I learned a really key interview skill with him, which is establish a human connection to diffuse the person being interviewed. Meaning that he might, you know, he doesn't know who I am. He's, maybe he's nervous, maybe he's not, maybe he doesn't care. I don't know what, what's going through his head. But the second you establish that relationship, telling him a story about when I was a kid, mm-hmm. he told me things that I didn't even ask him. He told me things about his family and the divorce. And I didn't say anything. I would, that's not something I would even ask him. But he said it because he was comfortable because I told him a story in the beginning. And I, I think that is, is really powerful when, when they feel like you're on their team. Yeah. Of course, it matters what the objective of the interview is, if it's to extract information or if it's to get someone talking. Extract, I mean, is in like, I need to know, hey, you, what day did you, um, were you on site when the, when the place was broke into or not? That's a different kind of interview. But I think that generally speaking, we're trying to help people share ideas, which obviously is what your book is about and what your interviews are the basis of. I found the same thing. Like, just some sort of connection in person. And again, it keeps going back to the human aspect. On, um, so, And it's easier. Like, you interviewing me, this is much easier than if you've never met me before or right. connected me at some level. Right. And I find that people who I've interviewed multiple times, like Richard Branson, you've interviewed too. Yep. I've interviewed him three times, so that my third interview was a piece of cake yeah. because I knew his con- content yeah. material so well. Yeah. And there's something to be said about really knowing the person and doing your work and maybe reading their book or an article or other interviews they've done. I did Chris Anderson, the head curator of, T- of TED. Yep. And I, this is my second interview with him. I look back at all his previous interviews over his career so that when I'm sitting next to him, it's almost like I've, I've known him for years. Yeah. And that, that creates not only a good connection and respect for the person you're interviewing, but you know what to ask them because you know what's already been asked. Right. These, are, these are interpersonal skills. I want to get away from the person and I want to go to content. What's something that was the most perhaps surprising thing that yeah. has come out of one of these 2,000, I'll call them human connections that you have in interviewing all these folks? Yeah. What, what the is, last what, question something? I always ask, which you've, you've answered, is what's your best piece of career advice? And there's two people who answered it the same way. Very different people. Both writers, though. Okay. Michael Lewis okay. and Seth Godin, who you know very yeah. well. Yes. And they both, said, they both said the same thing, is, is don't trust everyone's advice. Right? Like, I can't even give you the best career advice because you know, even, you know, it could be general but not fit your specific situation, so it's almost unfair to you. Yeah. And there were two out of over 2,000 that, that said that, and I, it, they both 
caught me by surprise. Yeah. I mean, Michael Lewis, the first time he was the first one to say that, I was right. like, wow, that's interesting. Right. From such a prolific writer and someone who probably you could learn a lot from. Yeah. And then Seth Godin, who is, is also very well trusted in, in our world. Oh man, Seth, him saying Seth's it is like, okay, that's interesting that he said that. But what, what's interesting is anytime I ask that question, people usually pause for a second to think about it. And I think that with my format of five questions in like under 10 minutes, it forces people to give their best content because, because there's a limited time. Can we talk about diversity and inclusion? Diversity in ideas, diversity in humans. How do you think about that in, in any organization? I think you need shared values to connect on a human level and form a strong foundation with a person or a team. Yeah. And then I, you need to have people who come from different backgrounds to challenge your beliefs and thoughts because that's how you, everyone grows together. And so, uh, you know, what's really interesting in the education space is we did a, a recent survey around the skills gap. And one of the things were, you know, you know, companies' openness to hiring people without a four-year college degree. Yeah, oh, because that's just to fill taking the, the place by storm right yeah. now. Huh? Yeah. yeah, and it's, it's over 90% of employers are open to hiring people without a four-year college degree. Say that again. Over 90% of employers are open to hiring people without a four-year college degree. Whereas a four-year college degree in most HR systems, it would filter right out. Yeah. And now they're so desperate to fill this talent gap with these right technical skills that they're more open to it than ever before. And you're going to see more and more of that in the future. Yeah. And these are companies and, like Apple, Facebook, Google, uh, Microsoft. Uh, the, like These are companies where you think like tech and technology and school and training. And, and yet, if you can write great code, or in the creative industries we know, if you can write great copy, take great photos, shoot great films, like now more than ever before, that four-year degree yeah. is it's a lot more negotiable than it, than it ever has been. Yeah, and diversity, the biggest talk right now is on gender, clearly. That's, yes. that's been a big talk for huge, many, huge many years. Opportunity to get but better. it's everything. Diversity can be where you're from, it could be your upbringing. It could be what you look like. Diversity comes from all parts of life. Yeah. And I think that once we embrace that and we let people share their ideas, so like, you know, if you create a safe environment where people feel comfortable being themselves, people want to bring their full self into the workplace. Yeah. Whether you like it or not. Yeah. Like they don't want to be, you know, John the worker versus John the the mother or the father, right? Like yeah. they just want to be them. And if we create a safe environment where people trust each other, they'll more, they'll more than likely share ideas that could have a huge impact and feel respected so they'll stay longer and be happier. Yeah, I think that's, so the book's broken down in, into three parts. For I'm, I'm just looking at the table of contents here and I, I, I'm a big freak of organization and structure. Like I create structure in my life so I can have a, a ping pong ball within that structure. That's my creative style. And this is just so, so the first part's self-connection, second one is team connection, and third is organizational. And this, what I love about this, and we talked about this before the camera started rolling, like I'm passionate about it because this applies to individuals. If you're a freelancer, small shops, and you know, if you're a contributor in a big organization. And we all, like, if you're listening to this, by and large, you're a, a creator or an entrepreneur or entrepreneurial in spirit. And um, I think just you framed that really, really well. Or I'm sure you didn't really consult me on this, so uh, <laughs> maybe I should have. <laughs> yeah, but, but you nailed it. And so the ch- chapter four um, is on diverse ideas uh, and diversity in the workplace, which I think is powerful. Um, 
So we talked a little bit especially, about... Especially now, because the younger generations are the most diverse generations of all time. Yeah. So this diversity is happening whether we like it or not. Like everyone says, oh, you know, fewer than 5% of the C-suite is women. But naturally, over time, once we get, you know, past a lot of the, you know, un- unequal pay yeah. and, and everything that's happened for years, eventually it's just going to become more diverse naturally based on who's part of the population. Yeah. We also need to accelerate that. I'm not, I'm not willing to wait around and have it be natural. I want to force that. we got a long way to go still. Um, I think last sort of line of questions, I'm, I'm wary of our time and wanted to say thanks for it in advance, but we talked a little bit about you know, humans that you've interviewed. We talked a little bit about some ideas that were a surprise, but there are, there are threads that when you've interviewed this many people and spent time with this many great companies, there are a few threads. So what are threads that you see in where greatness is exuded on individuals? What are some individual habits or, or anything? Like what we're in pursuit of here is helping people grow, transform, and we don't have to do everything ourselves. We don't have to touch the stove to know it's hot. We can look at someone else, touch the stove, and say, oh, that stove's probably hot because they burn themselves. You've gotten to interview 2,000 people. What are some common traits from the people that you feel like really got it together? Well, do uh, humans first yeah. and then companies second. Yeah, so. perseverance. I think that everyone goes through rejection. There is no success without failure, right? And so they're willing to take in the pain and work <laughs> with it and override it. Yeah. And Is it overriding or is it moving through? Moving through. Yeah. Or, and and th- they're willing to face fear. And even though they might still be fearful, they're willing to push against that and, and test the boundaries. They're willing to get rejected a lot. They yeah. put people first. 70 agents. They, they put people first, right? Yep. They understand that they need to form a team. You can't do it alone. And most of them talk about passion, right? And there's been a lot of talk about, you know, following your passion. They believe that they followed their passion. But maybe in many cases, it's they found out something that they were really good at and that became their passion. Yeah. I, I think that's what I've read through the lines. Yeah. And then the other thing is they have great mentors, right? And it's not, you know, everyone gets this whole mentoring thing wrong. You're like, you just choose Chase and right. like, will you be my mentor? I get, I get those DMs every single yeah. day. Will I've you never, be my I mentor? I don't, I don't ask Sorry, that. Sorry, we just, we just met. We haven't even met really. This is, I got met. You live in Ireland and I just got a DM from you. But so it's not like that, but... Okay, but, it's, but mentorship it, is a key part of these people, these high performers, it's, their path. It's they do some of the work first to prove themselves and prove mm-hmm. that they're willing to hustle and, and put the work and time in. Mm-hmm. And then people are more willing to mentor them because they, they see potential in them. So you need to do the work first. You need to kind of prove yourself a little bit first. Yeah. And then people will help you. But don't think of this mentoring relationship as this person is like your slave for 50 years. Right. It's more of hey, like this is somebody who I can ask a, a question to yeah. and I really need it. Like, that's how stuck. Mark Cuban works. Yeah. And you work with a lot of, of investors too, yeah, right? It's course. like yeah, when you Cuban really works. need it, ask for yeah, the favor. Totally. Um, but I think that's, that, that's a case for everything in general. It's like don't be the person to, con- to constantly take and take and take. That's the reason why I only write a book every four to five years because I, I, I'm asked for favors every four to five years. Yeah. And then for the rest of the time, I just want to be generous Give. and help people. Yeah. And I think to me that feels right. To other people, maybe you create your own formula. But you know, I think these people, as much as they think 
everyone thinks they're self-involved and it's all about them, they realize that in order to be successful as an individual, you yeah. have to surround yourself with other people and be generous with your time, your money, and your resources. Yeah, fascinating. And to me, that that's really important because that's how I've lived my life. And yeah. I think I think that is part of you know what's inspired me through all these interviews is hey, it's, it's not all about you, it's about other people. And when you serve for other people and produce for them, everything comes back anyways. Yeah. So everything you wanna build is with other people. It's fascinating, I, I, I have to concur with that. Just, I was thinking about all, you know, I've done, I haven't done thousands, but I've certainly done hundreds, and it's, it is so consistent. But the interviews or letting people use your platform to teach, yeah. it's all these connection points and yeah. it brings people into your community. Yeah. And as a result of that, they now know you and they can take your brand elsewhere. Yeah. And they benefit professionally. So yeah. creating that win-win is important. And I learned this with George Foreman. He, he said something really early in my career. He's one of the first like, really famous people I interviewed back in the day. And he said that you have to create the win-win situations. You can't have one person benefiting more than the other person. Otherwise, it won't be a sustainable relationship. And that stuck by me too. Brilliant. So that's with people. And those are some of the, the uh, commonalities, the threads that you've seen with the successful folks that you've, you've uh, interviewed and that are featured in your book, Here Back to Human. What about companies, brands? You, you know, full circle. We're gonna go back to you. Know, you, op- you opened in part today with like, wow, brands are actually they're they're they have emotion connected, and there's almost like people where you want to connect with them and learn from them and participate with them. And so here we are, having worked now with a lot of different brands, and you're we're helping them guide their people strategy and learning and um, which brands. Not, less, not necessarily which brands do it well, because I don't want this to be about the brands, but what are the characteristics of those companies? Here's the number one thing. So this is I've studying workplace cultures for over a decade. Okay. Feels like a family. That's it. That is the most important thing to create the best culture, best company, the best place to work. Yeah. It's you feel like you're part of something and you can be your true self at work and not be punished or made fun of because of it. And that to me is the most powerful thing that is like really back to human, right? It's like, I can be myself, um, I trust my leadership, I feel like I belong, I feel like I'm supported, um, you know, pay is taken off the table because I'm being paid fairly and I'm giving a, a, enough flexibility when mm-hmm. I need it. Yeah. I'm gonna do my best, yeah. this is gonna be great, I'm never gonna leave. Yeah. And that's where you get the high retention rates from is when you're part of a family because it's much easier to leave a company with just a bunch of acquaintances than people who you're friends, best friends with and, and you feel like a family with, right? So I think that's so powerful and that's why there is that dark side of remote work. If you're not part of that, if you don't feel like you're part of that family, yeah. then you're disconnected and you will probably leave. That's why I love, I interviewed a few leaders for the book and what they do is they let the remote workers actually manage the meetings. They let them start and, and orchestrate some of the meetings so that they feel like they're part of, like working from the headquarters at that point. Brilliant. So I think that's so smart, is empowering the people who you don't even see. Brilliant. All right, well, A, congratulations on the book, the new book, it's amazing. B, what's the best way for people to find and track you on the internet? And we'll give you shouts out and whatnot, and where where do you send people? DanShawBell.com, so it's D-A-N-S-C-H-A-W. B-E-L.com. And then there's the podcast, which you'll be on soon. Five questions with Dan Shaw Bell and Amazon or wherever books are sold. Awesome. 
There you go, folks. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dan. Such a pleasure. We made friend. it happen. Love After it. a few years. Uh, folks, check it out. Really happy to uh, have the second signed copy I got from Dan. You heard it here first that I'm a second place. <laughs> Signing off. Thanks again for, for being on the show again, Dan. And we'll see you next week or maybe ideally tomorrow. All right. That about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn so check that out they're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet all right until again uh, probably tomorrow i hope i'll hear you i'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and i'll look for your comments on the internets bye <laughs>